Welcome to Growth Island, your go-to podcast on how to be the best version of yourself. Now, let's join your host, Mess Freeze, as he interviews high performers and experts in nutrition, meditation, exercise, relationships, business, general health, and life's bigger mysteries. Thank you so much for tuning in again today. Today, I got a super cool expert in disasters, especially what we're seeing right now with the world. It's Dr. Klip Sipersky. He is a disaster avoidance expert. He's written a bestseller called Never Go With Your Gut and several other really interesting books. He's been featured at Time, Fast Company, Psychology Today, Newsweek, Scientific American, The Guardian, Inc., and a lot of other places. He has a PhD from North Carolina, Chapel Hill, in the history of behavioral science. So super interested to get you in here today. Glip, thank you so much. Thank you so much for inviting me, Manza. It's a pleasure to be on. So behavioral economics, if people don't know what that is. <laughs> behavioral economics is studying how we actually behave as human beings. Classical economics studies how we would ideally behave as rational human beings. Yes. Unfortunately, that's not the way that human beings actually are. We, do, we are not rational, overwhelmingly so. So the cutting-edge research on how we behave shows that about 80 to 90% of our decisions, of our behaviors, of our thought processes are driven by emotions when we do the typical human thing of going with our gut and following our intuitions. Behavioral economics studies how people behave in economic situations as real, functioning, irrational human beings. Yes. And, and that is the difference between behavioral economics and classical economics. Perfect. Thank you so much. And how did you get into that? Well, I actually got into it when I was a kid. Of course, I didn't study this topic when I was a kid, but I was inspired to study this uh, as a kid because I saw my parents making some really bad decisions themselves. They were, as the typical people do, going with their gut, following their intuitions, trusting their instincts, going with their heart, you know, name, whatever you name it. Unfortunately, their guts often disagreed with each other. Yes. So my dad, for example, my mom was, um, you know, she liked to buy nice clothing, so she'd go out and she'd buy a $100 sweater. And my dad was kind of a cheapskate, so she'd come home and, He'd yell at her and say, no sweater should be worth over $20. So that was not great for me as a kid because then they'd start fighting, bringing up other things. That was not good. The worst time was when my dad, so he was a real estate agent, and he made money based on commission. So it was variable income depending on how he's doing. There was about a six-month period where he made a lot of money, but he hid it from my mom, told her he made very little money. Uh, he probably didn't want her to spend on sweaters. And so he bought an apartment elsewhere okay. and leased, leased it out to some folks. And eventually, in a couple of years, my mom found out. She was very angry. She was very upset, very pissed. There was a huge, big blowout fight. And she actually kicked him out of the house. So he had to live in that apartment that he <laughs> bought. And that was very hard for me as a kid to have that fight and to not see my dad for, I mean, I saw my dad pretty rarely in that period. They eventually reconciled, but you could never really trust him again. So that really made me think, you know, 
why did nobody teach them how to make good decisions? Mm. You know, they clearly make bad decisions. So why did nobody teach me how to make good decisions? Why did nobody sit me down as a kid and say, hey, kid, this is how you make good decisions. This is how you make bad ones. Make sure you make good ones. Why was I not taught that in school, whether in grade school, middle school, high school? You know, I went to college. I wasn't taught that either. And this is not taught in business school. So I decided to study this topic. And uh, how do we make our decisions? How do we make bad decisions? How can we make better ones? And that is where I got into the topic of cognitive biases, which you can talk later about in the interview. Mm. But I learned about these cognitive biases. And as I started learning about them, people started asking me my opinion, my take on things. So I became a trainer, consultant, coach, speaker. I've been doing this sort of stuff for 20 years training and decision-making and risk management, disaster avoidance, which is especially important with the COVID-19 pandemic mm. going on right now. We can talk about that later. And I went into academia. So I studied these topics formally, as you mentioned, for 15 years, the behavioral economics and cognitive neuroscience. So those are my areas of expertise. And that's what brought me together into my latest book called Never Go With Your Gut, how pioneering leaders make the best decisions and avoid business disasters. Yes. It brings together all of that information. Super interesting. So I studied uh, a fair bit of behavioral economics as well when I was studying. It was mostly Kahneman that I learned about system one and two and how we're basically just super rational. And it's a big um, illusion that we are as rational. So I would say I've spent the last 10 years as well studying about uh, our human flaws as well and then slowly actually starting to learn how to follow my gut a bit more so I think it's uh, I would love to get your opinions uh, not that it should be a battle between uh, whether to follow your gut sometimes or not but I'd love to get your take on like uh, why some people are saying following your gut and why it's actually a really bad decision often Following your gut is very problematic because it feels very comfortable to follow your gut. It feels very comfortable to go with your, intu your intuitions. But our gut, our intuitions are actually not adapted for the modern environment. And this is one of the areas of exploration of Danny Kahneman, as you mentioned, and Amos Tversky. My, so they're the first generation of scholars who are actually finding out how our brain is screwed up, mm -hmm. all the problems. My generation is a second generation, which is figuring out how do you fix these problems that they identified. So I'm kind of building up on his, you know, standing on his shoulders in that sense. And so what they found out is that our gut is not adapted to the modern environment. It's adapted to the savannah environment. When we lived in small tribes of 15 people to 150 people who are hunters, foragers, and gatherers. So there are two big, big problems, a number of big problems, but two things that I want to highlight, especially with cognitive biases that causes a lot of problems in business. One is tribalism. So tribalism, we needed to be very tribal in that savannah environment because if we weren't sufficiently supportive of our tribe, we would be kicked out of our tribe and then we'd die. Mm. <laughs> or our tribe would fall apart if we weren't sufficiently conformist to it, and we died too. So we're the descendants of all the people who didn't die, yes. who are very tribal, who looked and felt that they needed to support other people like themselves, who held their values, who looked like them, and who needed to be hostile to opposing tribes, the groups that aren't like them. So that's kind of in-group, out-group bias, hail of horns effect, we can talk about that. The other really important component to remember is that our primary threat response is the fight or flight response. Now in the savannah environment, that was great, that was perfect. It was really important for us to have that very strong, intense response 
to the immediate in the moment dangers. We had to jump at a hundred shadows to get away from that one saber-toothed tiger. You might have heard of it as a saber-toothed tiger response. Hmm. Well, you might notice in the present environment, we have many less saber-toothed tigers, <laughs> but we still react to threats as though they're saber-toothed tigers. So for example, with COVID-19, so many people have reacted to it by going out and shopping and buying things that they don't need. That's a you know the whole series of reactions there. That's the fight response. And then a number of other people are just completely ignoring it. They're saying, you know, it's not a big deal, whatever. The government is stupid, says to lock down. I'm just going to go do my thing. That's the flight response. They're fleeing from the negative information. Neither of those is the right response hmm. to this situation. We're actually not wired to deal with slow-moving train wrecks like the COVID-19 pandemic. That wasn't the situation that was there in the Savannah environment. So right now, whether individuals or businesses... They are not functioning, not responding to it correctly. They're not thinking about the long term. There are specific cognitive biases, which we can talk about, that are involved there. But they're not thinking about the long term consequences. They're really not understanding the kind of disruption this is bringing and what kind of a long term impact it will have. So that's very that's an example of where we don't function well when dealing with modern threats. Mm. Makes sense. And what are some other really common biases that we make? And why, like, so we make bad decisions. Yeah, so let's talk about COVID-19 so we can dive in depth into that. Yeah. And that's indicative of a number of other biases. So one is called the normalcy bias. Now, the normalcy bias refers to us envisioning that the future will look like the past. That's our intuition. That's what we feel comfortable with. And in the Savannah environment, that was the right thing. The future in the Savannah environment was overwhelmingly going to look like the past. So we tend to have that same perspective, that the future will not be different. Well, that doesn't work very well in the modern world. Think about the COVID-19 pandemic. It's very infectious. Each person gets two to four others infected. The infection rate doubles every three to six days if left unchecked without social distancing and so on. And it lasts for a while on surfaces. So that's another source of infection. It doesn't look like it will burn out in the summer because hotter countries are still having that pandemic. So it will take a while. We will not be rid of it until we have a vaccine. Vaccine will take about 18 months to produce by the best scientific estimates. That's going to be the most optimal scenario, most optimistic scenario, 18 months. And then maybe another year to produce and ship enough of it for everyone. So at the most optimistic scenario, we have two to three years of social restrictions, working from home, you know, let, loosening and restricting, depending on the situation. And that will change our society very much. I mean, the less least optim less optimistic scenario, more pessimistic, is that we will not find a vaccine that's more effective than the flu vaccine, which is only about 50% effective. So we'll have to be stuck with COVID-19 our whole lives. That would be pretty terrible, but it's the reality of the situation. So in either scenario, whether it's two to three years or the rest of our lives, we are facing a major disruption where a number of business models have to change, a number of careers have to change, the way that you interact with your friends and loved ones has to change in a major way. And people are still functioning in emergency mode and not realizing that. Now, the normalcy bias, so that's kind of one example out of a societal level, you know, and we also saw that, of course, with the 2008 financial crisis, where people who bought their house in 2007 just thought that the world will be normal and that housing prices would keep going up, right? It's another cause for bubbles. So that's another problem. But it's also a problem for 
companies, individual companies, not for broad long-term trends. So think about Boeing as an example with the 737 MAX. Now, Boeing fell into the normalcy bias. How? Well, what was happening with Boeing, what the leadership saw, was that every past Boeing new model of airplane was safer than the last model. So every model you know, going from the past to the future was safer, less accidents, less problems. And despite a lot of information from inside the company saying that, you know, hey, this is a problem, there's a lot of technical issues, we really need to fix it up, we, we should not release it like this, you know, with one statement apparently saying that this is a plane that's uh, created by monkeys, supervised by clowns, you know, you don't want to hear that, but that's inside the company. But the Boeing leadership ignored that. It thought the future would be normal. It thought that the future would be similar to the past. And of course, there, the, this pattern of thinking led to the loss of 346 lives in the two crashes of the Boeing 737 MAX. And it led to Boeing's value decreasing before the pandemic, before this problem, the valuation of Boeing by about $25 billion. So $25 billion loss because of this no normalcy bias really causing a disaster for Boeing. So these are some examples where one only one bias, the normalcy bias, leads to a great deal of problems. Yeah. And what are some of the more common that people use in their everyday life? Mm. So sunk cost or yes. confirmation so bias or some of the other ones? Sure, of course. So the ones you named, confirmation bias, refers to us looking for information that we want to believe and ignoring information that doesn't, that we don't want to believe. So there was a really interesting study done by Leadership IQ of about 1,087 board members who fired their CEOs. And this was 1,087 board members of 286 companies that fired and other organizations that fired their CEOs. Now, the main, one of the top five reasons given for firing these CEOs was denialism meaning denying negative facts about reality. So these were CEOs who, it wasn't that they were incompetent, that they were doing things wrong. They were just ignoring negative information about the company, about the future of the company, and going toward only positive information. So that confirmation bias, they were looking for information. If they think that, hey, I'm a good CEO, therefore the company must be functioning well, therefore this negative information is not correct. So they would just ignore this negative information. And that's a classical example of how things go wrong. Mm. Another example, so you mentioned sunken costs. That's where we tend to invest our money, our resources into projects way past their due date, way past when we should have cut our losses and said, you know, that's that's not a, something that we should invest our resources into. You'll often see this on major uh, IT projects. So I've seen a lot of IT projects where, let's say, database transition, transformation. Mm. So there's a company that, would um, there was a company of about 600 people, a manufacturing company, mid-sized company that was transitioning to a new database. And I was not directly involved in the process, but I coached uh, one of the people who was uh, in a middle management role. So I was the coach for this person. The person was telling me about the situation. And he was telling me about how the database project was just going forward and at a certain point, you know, the database that the company previously had was clashing with this new database, and the company kept investing into this new database, while the on the ground, the people on the ground 
didn't use the new database. Mm. They thought that, hey, the new database, you know, it had all these issues. We much prefer our older database. And the top leadership kept pushing the new database, paying a lot of money for it and, of course, a lot of time for it in spite of the fact that the people on the ground really didn't like the new database, they didn't prefer the new database, the leadership felt that they committed to it. They already paid the money and they kept paying the money for it, even though it proved not useful on the ground. It just didn't work for them. Mm. So, of course, the big problem was that the leadership was sold on the database by some you know, less than scrupulous database providers who didn't really investigate the details on the ground of what it would look like for the company and didn't really adapt the database to the company's needs. Now, what you want to do when you do a database transformation project, transition project, is treat it as a serious change management issue. You look at all the behaviors of all the people who are actually using the database and you see what is the new database going to do for them that is going to be more helpful and how do you train each person transition them to using the new database. Change not only the database, not only technology, but also change people's behaviors, change their interaction with the technology. It's more important than having the right technology in this case is making sure that people are using the technology well because it's all about our behaviors. If we're not emotionally invested into this new database, we're not going to be using it. And so that is a big problem with change management issues. Of course, there are a number of cognitive biases involved there. Yeah. So this is an example with the sunken costs that the company really screwed up. And they they eventually had to, long after they should have done this move, they they eventually pulled back from the new database and kept stuck, kept with the using the old database after spending was it over over a million dollars on the new database altogether. Yeah. So <laughs> that's an example. And Le, what are some of the things you see that many professionals are doing in their life that's kind of holding them back for progressing their career or actually living a happy life? Mm. One of the biggest problems that, that people aren't aware of in their career, so we can talk about the career, is the effect of risk management on their career, of risks and rewards. They're not really thinking about how they're biased in this manner. So I've learned for myself, for example, that I tend to suffer from what's called the optimism bias. Now, the optimism bias is where I tend to see the world as a bright and happy place as, or I feel, I don't see it, I don't rationally think about it, but I feel that the world is a safe and nice place, that the grass is green on the other side of the hill, even though it's sometimes yellow. I have lots of ideas. I have 20 ideas before breakfast, and I think all of them are brilliant. I know <laughs> I that feeling. Two, <laughs> yes. Yep. So I think that, you know, I tend to ignore risks and focus on rewards. Yeah. And I tend to have high expectations for myself and for other people. Now, most people, I'm a business leader. I run a six-people company called Disaster Avoidance Experts, doing consulting, training, and coaching. And most people who are business leaders, especially the top of the company, tend to be like me. They tend to be optimistic because this is it helps optimistic people, people who are optimistic, to get to the top. Because what is a leader? It's someone who inspires others, and others are inspired by someone who shows confidence, who shows optimism, who shows a cheery mood. So optimistic people tend to get up in the levels of the leadership. Now, unfortunately, while optimism helps them inspire others, it 
hinders them. It hinders me from making good decisions. Because if I think that, you know, all of my 20 ideas are brilliant and I invest the company's resources al- along all of these 20 ideas, that would not be helpful, right? Yes. <laughs> that is a big problem. So that's something I had to learn for myself. This is a problem for me. And it's not only a problem in business, of course, it's a problem in personal life, where I tend to be too optimistic about my relationships with others, or, you know, house construction projects, I think that it'll take a much shorter time than it will actually take or something like that. So it impacts me in personal life as well. Now, what I learned to do in this case, is use one of the techniques of debiasing techniques, which is calibration. So calibration is a really important, very useful tool for debiasing. And debiasing is the practice of defeating these cognitive biases. How do we defeat these cognitive biases? That's the practice of debiasing. So one of the techniques for debiasing is called calibration, probabilistic thinking. So probabilistic thinking is where I estimate the probabilities of reality. So if I think, let's say that um, I'm writing an important email to a client and the client will do what I want the client to do. Let's say I feel that the client will very likely do it. You know, I feel that there's an 80% probability that the client will do it. I've learned that I tend to be way too optimistic. So I tend to be too optimistic by you know, maybe half or something like that, by, by 50%, by 40 to 50%. So I have to downgrade my optimism and I say, well, I've learned that I tend to be too optimistic and by 50%. So I'm going to decrease my optimism by 50% and say the client is only 40% likely to do it. Mm. And that is something that really helps me because it helps me actually have a much more realistic perspective on what's going to happen. And that so I had to learn that. I had to learn over time how optimistic I am. So the way that you can do it for yourself is applying this probabilistic thinking technique is anticipate, you know, let's say you're writing an email or you're making a project or you're doing anything where you're trying to get somebody else to agree to something that you want them to do. That's one area. Another area is where you're trying to time your project completion, how much time or how many resources will take you to complete a project and estimate by how optimistic you are. If you do tend to be optimistic, how optimistic are you? 20% 20% of this is this all functions on a spectrum. So optimism bias, you can be very optimistic, moderately optimistic, whatever. And you want to learn how optimistic you are and then calibrate for that. So say that you learn that you're 30% optimistic, well, you can calibrate, you can decrease your anticipation assumptions by 30% or add 30% more time, 30% more money to whatever projects mm. you're running. So that's kind of one way of fixing the optimism bias. Now, the other way that I use, so the, the calibration I use for my everyday tasks, everyday activities, and that's what I help clients with who are optimistic. Now, what I also make sure to tell them and what I do myself for major projects, for more serious issues, I make sure to run my ideas by someone who is a pessimist. So that's the technique. That's the technique of getting an external perspective. Mm. Getting external perspective, taking an outside view of the on the situation, is very helpful for addressing the optimism bias. Now, the pessim, pessimism bias is what it sounds like. These are people who think the grass is yellow on the other side of the hill, even though it's sometimes green, and who are too risk averse. Yes. Who doubts their challenge. So what I do, I have 20 brilliant ideas before breakfast, right? So I make sure to give these ideas 
to someone in my company who is a pessimist and run it by that person. And they will tell me that, you know, hey, you know, these three ideas might be worthwhile. These 20 ideas are, you know, they all have baked potatoes, but three, these three are worth finishing baking. So let's work on these three ideas. And then they fix all the problems and then they implement them because pessimists are really terrible at generating ideas. That's <laughs> yes. not their strength. They see the exaggerated flaws of each idea. Yes. So they tend to not even generate the idea. But what they're great at is judging, evaluating other people's ideas. So you give them ideas, they evaluate them, and then they fix all the flaws in the ideas, and then they implement the idea as well because they can see the flaws. So that's their strength, and that's great. And that's why you really want to make sure that your team has cognitive diversity. Yes. Meaning it doesn't only have optimists and or only pessimists, that it makes sure that it has both. Now, I can tell you that I don't like working with pessimists. I would much prefer to hire other optimists on my team. You know, my friends tend to be optimists. I much prefer to work with optimists and hire optimists on my team because I click with them. It feels very comfortable. It feels good to my gut to work with optimists. But what would happen if it's a team of all optimists? Well, you know, we'd all have 20 ideas before breakfast and we'd all think they're brilliant and we'd reinforce each other and we'd say, yes, that's a brilliant idea. Let's go with it. So then, you know, if it's a team of five people, you'd have 100 different projects and running in 100 different directions. And most of those would not be helpful yes. projects. So this is why it's very important to have a cognitively diverse team. And of course, a team of pessimists just wouldn't be generating ideas. So that would be bad too. So you want to make sure that your team is cognitively diverse. It has people with different strengths and where you can complement each other. And of course, you can make, address each other's weaknesses. That is very important. And so you want to make sure that people with optimism and pessimism are on your team. And that's why it's very important to learn about all of these cognitive biases. Hmm. Some of them, it's really valuable to make sure that you have people who complement each other on these cognitive biases on your team. And you need to know what these cognitive biases are in order to address them effectively, including having a team that addresses these cognitive biases effectively. For sure. I just want to go back to the thing you had about scheduling and being optimistic. I had a class at Harvard where we learned a lot about that, which was exactly the point of like learning how to actually time yourself because we have the tendency to always underestimate how long a task will take. So yep. timing how long it takes and then starting to get more data on how long does different tasks takes. So instead of what you think it takes, you take from historical data. And that yep. way you become better and better, but you would still often put something like 20%, 30%, also depending on how, how off you normally are to it, but mm -hmm. that you would later get better and better at estimating. So I've, I've yes. been doing that for eight years or so, and I, I'm Excellent. still off, <laughs> but I am not as off as I was five years ago. So yep. I think that's a super concrete, very simple thing to implement. Yep, exactly right. And that's kind of the value of calibration. Yeah. And you can calibrate on a whole variety of things, whether it's time, whether it's money. Now, um, one of the things that I make sure to have encourage my clients to do is to calibrate on relationships where they're mental models of other people. Do, what do they anticipate other people will think about a topic? And then by doing that, they can adjust their mental models of other people. Because one of the biggest cognitive biases we have about other people is called the false consensus effect, where we tend to think that other people agree with us to a much larger extent, much bigger extent than they actually do agree with us. So what you'll overwhelmingly find, I can almost guarantee you this, is that you will think that other people will agree with you mm. when they actually will not. 
And so you want to be able to calibrate for that. And that's very important in good business relationships and, of course, good personal relationships, romantic relationships, friends, family. You'll want to be able to anticipate the areas that they are going to be more different from you than you think they are. Yes, makes sense. Makes sense. And what do you see one of the cognitive biases that's most prominent when it comes to happiness? Mm. Well, I talked about the optimism bias and the pessimism bias. I see pessimism bias as definitely a major issue yeah. impeding happiness. So that's been something that I've seen people do a lot. Yeah. Mm. The other thing that I've seen that I think is really problematic for happiness is called the horns effect. So yeah. I talked earlier a little bit about tribalism. So let's get a little bit more into it. One of the aspects of tribalism that's really harmful is called the horns effect. There yeah. are two uh, there are two uh, dynamics here. So the horns effect refers to when we don't like one aspect of someone because if that aspect shows that they're not in our tribe, then we will dislike that person as a whole. And the opposite, if we show, if we see one aspect of someone that we perceive as part of our tribe, we will like that person more than they deserve. We'll give that person credit and so on. So the horns effect, that replies, that applies to things like race, sexuality, gender, ability, and also cognitive diversity. So if we see that someone is, if you're a pessimist and you see that someone is an optimist, you will inherently dislike that person because you don't click with them. Yes. So the, and that applies to a whole number of cognitive biases, cognitive diversity of all sorts. And this is one of the things that I see as really impeding happiness for a lot of people because it causes us to look at things with which we disagree with other people. It really is highly problematic because in reality, we agree on about 90% of things, even when person who is very different from us. We all want safety and security for our families, generally for other people. We want to be happy. We want to be fulfilled. We want to self-actualize ourselves. We want to you know, not get sick with COVID-19, right? That's kind of a global trend mm -hmm. right now. So that is, these are things that we share with pretty much everyone across the world. And there's only a small amount of things that we disagree on. And people, unfortunately, with the horns effect, tend to focus their attention on the things that we disagree on with other people. And they tend to be, as a result, less happy, more hostile, more tense, focusing more on their own tribe and really not acknowledging that we're all part of the tribe of humanity. And I see that as really impeding happiness Makes for sense. themselves and others. Makes sense. And what's so I also heard there's the, some kind of bias that we overestimate how um, changes will make us feel a lot of us overestimate that a career choice will make us feel happier where it doesn't yes. change our happiness as much as we actually estimate yes it doesn't change uh, so it's adaptation yeah. so we tend to adapt to the situation we overestimate the extent to which our emotions it's not specifically about happiness it's just about our emotions yeah we overestimate the extent to which our emotions will be intense and the extent to which they last because i mean if you go back to the survival environment of the savannah our emotions are designed to help us survive that means that if we uh, see a saber-toothed tiger again it's a very strong negative response if we see 
sugar, uh, a source of sugar, honey, or you know, apples or bananas. We are very strongly tempted to eat the whole thing and feel very like we will feel very good while we eat the whole thing. This is why it's very hard when you have a box of dozen donuts in front of you to not eat the dozen donuts, yes. <laughs> even though it's not a healthy thing in the modern environment. This is one of the areas where your gut reactions are leading you in the wrong directions in the modern environment. We are very tempted to eat the dozen donuts. Even though, you know, you should, you know, one donut is maybe okay, you know, two donuts, okay, but, you know, got to stop at the third donut, because if you don't, you'll eat the whole box. Yes. But it's very tempting for us to not stop at that second donut, because again, of that savannah environment. So we feel like we will have a lot of pleasure from eating all of these things. And so that's the pleasure, pain, all of these, the fear, anxiety, we tend to excessively estimate the impact of these emotions on us, both the intensity and the length. And we don't realize how quickly we adapt to the emotional impact. There's been studies showing that if someone wins a lottery, they will tend to be happier for a short period, but they will, their happiness will gradually fade to their previous level of their baseline, unless they very specifically and clearly know how to address the kind of cognitive biases that cause them to fade to that baseline. So there are a number of things that you can specifically do to make sure that you have an elevated level of happiness. And I do these things. So things like a gratitude diary. So having each morning I write things that I'm grateful for and things that I'm proud of. Uh, things that you feel like you accomplished effectively. So not uh, not simply grateful for, but something that you feel you've learned. So where you see progress in your life and writing about that, that helps you bringing these things to mind, whether it's writing or whatever way you bring these things to mind, that helps you elevate your base level of happiness. And there are some other techniques. And these are the kind of things that you want to be thinking about if you actually want to focus on improving your happiness. Yeah. Interesting. The, so I write a gratitude journal as well. I've been doing that since 2013, almost every night before I go to bed. Three things Excellent. I'm grateful for. And sometimes I also write something that I learned, but I would definitely try like what I'm, what I'm proud of as well. That's mm -hmm. from the Danish culture. We're not, we have something called Yendelo, which is you're not allowed to be too proud of yourself or be <laughs> uh, sticking outside of the pack of being mm -hmm. more. So uh, we, we've kind of been brought up with that. But I think it's very important to remember the stuff that you're proud of as well. That's mm -hmm. a that's yes. a cool. I'll try and implement that after this world clip. So Excellent. one of the first things I learned when I heard about Kahneman, and it probably wasn't him, was the whole anchoring. So mm -hmm. that when we hear numbers, uh, whether it's negotiating a salary or I have to guess how much something weighs, the first number that we hear has a massive impact on like what we actually guess. So if you start by hearing a number 7,000, and you then have to guess how much something weighs were compared to hearing the number 70. You would guess high if you heard the 7,000. Mm -hmm. That's super strange, but that's, I think, one of the ones that most people have heard about. What are some of the more uncommon biases that we haven't heard about or that we have newly discovered that actually has an important impact on our life? Mm, okay, great question. Uh, things that we don't think about too often. Oh, um, an interesting one is called bike shedding. Yeah. where we tend to, so, so you, you might have heard of it, but it, it's a pretty rare one, where we tend to focus on things that are much less important instead of focusing on much more important things that are more complex. So we tend to focus, let's say, if we are designing a website, we tend to focus on 
the size of the fonts and the coloration instead of the usability and researching our target demographics, how they would use the website, which is a much more important and base question, yes. basic question. But it's a much more complex one. So it's very much more tempting to argue about the little things and to think about the little things than to think about the structure of the whole website. And that applies to a whole lot of areas. And of course, to home life as well. If you're thinking about doing, mm, let's say, a home improvement project, a major home improvement project, of, you know, painting your house and renovating a number of things, it's much more fun to think about and argue about what uh, wallpaper you should have than the structure of the whole renovation and the project mm. management, even though that's much more important. So these are the, this is, I would say, is one of the cognitive biases that's least recognized and is surprisingly important. Yep. Another one that's really um, unrecognized, very rarely recognized, but is supremely important. And this is kind of a, I would say, cognitive bias 201 because it's very difficult to appreciate for someone who hasn't studied cognitive biases in the past, is called the outcome bias. Now, the outcome bias refers to us evaluating the outcome of decisions by the actual by what happened rather than the process of the that uh, was used to make the decision now the problem with this sort of evaluation is that decisions have to be made and sometimes the sometimes the best decision leads to a bad outcome however the point of a decision is not to always guarantee the right outcome it's to maximize the chance the probability of a good outcome. So that's what we need to focus on rather than judging it by the outcome. So, you know, someone can buy a lottery ticket and win the lottery. And would you say that buy, that you should all go out and buy a lottery ticket? Of course not. That uh, person has gotten lucky. The decision quality was pretty bad because yes. the likelihood of winning a lottery ticket, you know, you pay a euro for, you know, a one cent a chance of winning a lottery ticket. So it's kind of a, something like that. That that would be the equivalent of buying a lottery ticket. It's a bad idea. It's not something that you should do financially speaking. But a lot of people will look at that and they say, hey, I should go play the lottery because look at that guy. Isn't that uh, guy made, made a wonderful decision? Of course he didn't. Hmm. So this is, applies very much to businesses when you look at, let's say, launching a new product. And Sometimes you get really lucky with a product that you shouldn't have gotten lucky with. Yes. <laughs> and it's sometimes it's the opposite, where you very carefully research the market and just, you know, COVID-19 comes around and your new restaurant that you opened up that was going to be a big hit is not, you know, viable anymore. And you just got some bad luck. Sometimes that happens. Yeah. So the outcome bias is, I think, one of the most powerful cognitive biases that we really don't think about because it's a very complex cognitive bias to think about. It's incredibly tempting and intuitive for us to judge a decision by the outcome rather than by the process. Makes a lot of sense. So time is running fast, Lip. I, I would like to get two more things before we uh, we end off. One thing is your model for how to make decisions and then rounding off, of course, where people can find out more about you and uh, the last advice for the viewers. So if we start by the model that I saw that you made for making good decisions. Yes. So I'll give you two models. One for making quick decisions where you want to just minimize risks. You're not trying to maximize rewards. You're trying to just not screw up. Yes. That's your goal. That's your point. 
So you ask yourself five questions, just takes a couple of minutes to do very quick, very easy, very effective, where you don't want to scrub decisions. So first, what important information didn't I get fully consider? So let's say we'll go back to the email uh, that you're writing to your client. If you didn't take into account the information that your client might not do what you want them to do, that would make it a weaker email. But if you actually take that information into account and put it into the email and address the client's concerns in advance, that would make it a much more powerful email. Mm. But we're very tempted to do the confirmation bias, the related biases, to ignore information that goes against our beliefs. So you want to look for that information and try to disprove your original decision. Try to show that you're wrong. Mm. And if you can't show that you're wrong, you're most likely right. That's great. But if you can't show that you're wrong, that's also great because then you have a chance to make a better decision. Yes. Second, what relevant dangerous judgment errors haven't I yet addressed? So what cognitive biases are involved? You know, in the people decision, halo and horns effect might be involved. In the planning decision, the sunken costs might be involved. So think about the kind of problems that might be involved and how you can address them. Third, what would a trusted an objective advisor tell me to do? So take a look at the situation from the outside. Think about what would you tell a close friend to do in this situation? And of course, you can just get a trust and objective advisor. So call this person, or if you're a millennial, text this person. <laughs> you certainly can't go see them if you're, you know, COVID-19 shut down. No. <laughs> Fourth question, how have I addressed all the ways this could fail? So let's think about the email to the client. Maybe your client is stuck at home right now with their children, you know, crawling all over them and they're in a bad mood and distracted. Now, you can read the email as though you're in a bad mood and distracted. And you can revise the email to remove any ambiguities and clarities, things that might be negatively interpreted, and to draw attention to the most important part of the email. Final question. What new information would cause me to change my mind? So what would cause you to revise the decision? For example, with the email to the client, maybe you could say, hey, if I don't hear from the client in a week, I'll call the client. That's a very clear revision point, decision-making point. And then you can let go of the email and just go forward. Whereas if you don't have that point, you'll still be wondering, hey, what, you know, my client didn't email me back. Maybe I should call them. Maybe I should email them more. Maybe I should text them. I don't know. So that you, you let go of that problem by making a specific revision point. So these five questions will help you minimize disasters, minimize problems, minimize risks. Now, another model will help you not simply minimize risks and remove problems, but maximize rewards. This will take you a while to go through. It's meant for serious decisions where that they significantly impact your bottom line, your health, your household, your relationships, whatever. So first, you want to identify the need for a decision to be made. Now, this might seem a surprising thing, but a lot of people don't identify the one they need to make a decision. So for example, if you're stuck, I was talking to a client, a coaching client, about six weeks ago, mm -hmm. and she's doing pretty well. She's in a good job that she's in a management role, making about $200,000. So that's a good job. But she's been stuck there for a while, and she's seen people who were in the company for a longer time, for a shorter time, be passed up. So she's passed over for a promotion. And so I was encouraging her to think about, well, what would happen in five years? Can you imagine yourself still in this position? Mm. And she had a very visceral reaction that, no, she really can't. But if she just didn't do anything, she would keep being passed over for promotion. Yes. <laughs> so that would, didn't help her. So we decided that she would take specific steps to 
either find a new job or get a college degree to help her get to the next level, get an MBA to help her get to the next level in her current job. So I'm not sure how that will be impacted by COVID-19. I still have to talk to her about afterward. But this is an example of where you need to make a decision. Then, gather relevant information from a variety of perspectives, especially from people with whom you disagree. So I, as an optimist, would make sure to get information from pessimists. You, as a pessimist, if you're a pessimist, should gather information from optimists. So people who disagree with you, who have a different take on things. Decide on the goals, painting a clear vision of the outcome. So let's say you're thinking about the COVID-19 and how you want to transition your career as a result. What Think about the clear vision of the outcome. We talked about it being around for at least the next three years, optimistically speaking, potentially our whole lifetime. So think about how you would adjust your career with at least three years of this quarantine on and off situation. You have to have that clear vision of yourself in that long term, as opposed to just going for what you want right now for the short term. Then develop clear decision-making criteria to evaluate options. So let's say you're thinking, let's go on with this new career. What kind of career do you want to have? What kind of activities do you want to be doing? So you want to think about the salary that you're going to be paid. You want to think about the kind of career growth potential that's there. You want to think about the long-term viability of this industry. You know, the restaurant industry might not be the best one to go into right now. So think about all of these things. And then make criteria weigh how important they are. So weigh your salary. How important is that to you on a scale of one to 10? Mm. One least important, 10 most important. Weigh the stability of the industry, its growth potential for on the scale of one to 10. Weigh your career advancement potential in that industry on a scale of one to 10 and so on. And that will help you make weighted priorities. And then you want to generate generate viable options to help you achieve your goals so that you want to go. This is one of the areas where I see people fail the most. They go go for the first acceptable option. They just figure out one, okay, this works for me. I'm going to go for it. That's a very bad idea when you want to maximize the quality of a decision. You want to generate at least five viable options, five things that will work for you in this situation, five viable options before you go forward because you will really leave money and other resources on the table if you don't generate viable options. This is for serious decisions that you want to make as perfect as possible. Hmm. So make sure to have five viable options. Then weigh the options using the criteria, picking the best of the bunch. So you already have weighted criteria, rank the options based on the criteria, and then multiply them together to get the best numerical option. Next, implement the option that you chose. Now, in implementing, there are two important things. You want to minimize problems and maximize rewards. So, first, you want to imagine that the decision completely failed, absolutely failed. Think about, then, all the reasons for why it failed and how you can address these reasons in advance. So, integrate into your implementation plan the fixing of problems in advance. Then imagine the decision succeeded wonderfully. Think about all the reasons why it succeeded and then integrate into your plan the whatever you can do to bring about these reasons. Finally, you want to make sure to have clear metrics to evaluate the implementation process and revise it as needed. So let's say you're thinking about a career switch. You want to evaluate how effective you are in making this career switch. So let's say if you're thinking of doing networking as part of the career switch, then what kind of metrics can you have in networking? How many meetings have you had with people from this new industry that you want to switch into? For example, what kind of a 
of how that can be a very clear and specific metric or let's say how many LinkedIn connections have you developed with people in this industry, something like this, things that you can clearly evaluate. And then you can see if you're succeeding, succeeding in your plan, if you're not succeeding in your plan, you know, maybe if you're having a lot of meetings with people from this industry and all of them and most of them are telling you that, hey, you know, this industry is actually not very well positioned for the future, that should indicate to you that you should revise your original plan. So these are the kinds of things that you want to be thinking about. These are the eight steps for making major serious decisions. It will take you maybe about 45 minutes to go through if you're doing it by yourself, maybe an hour plus, an hour and a half if you're going through it with a group, if you're making it as part of a team. And it's very important to go through it thoroughly to make the best decision possible. Thank you, Lip. That makes a lot of sense. I'll make sure to put that as one of the suggestions. I know you're on a lot of platforms, so I'll make sure to put them in the show notes and also links to your other books, excellent books. What's the one place if people have to uh, search you out? The best place to go is to disasteravoidanceexperts.com. That's my website. It has blogs, videos, podcasts, decision aids, guides, manuals. You want to especially check out disasteravoidanceexperts.com forward slash subscribe for an eight video-based module course. It's a free course, eight video-based modules on making the wisest decisions. Again, disasteravoidanceexperts.com forward slash subscribe. Perfect. And I'll make sure to put that in the show notes as well. Clip, thank you so much for your time and thanks for sharing some of your expertise. Thank you so much for inviting me, Mads. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of Growth Island. Be sure to subscribe for more episodes on how to be the best version of yourself. And if you found this show helpful, then please leave us a review so more people will learn about the podcast or share with a friend who can benefit from it too. Thank you again and have a wonderful day.